Welcome to Messy Leadership, a podcast for ultra-ordinary leaders in the midst of the mess. I'm Ryan Weaver. In the first two episodes of the podcast, we have discussed two essential topics in leadership. Worldview, the story that operates at the center of our lives, and vulnerability, the place where the messiness of our story is at its most complex. When we are aware of our personal worldview, this moves us into a posture of humility and story listening. And living with active vulnerability moves us to invite others into the mess of our story, building trust as the pathway to vibrant relationships within our organizations and sparking the courage to lead effectively. Every individual person ends up going somewhere in life, but a very small number of people end up going somewhere on purpose. The on-purpose destination of our lives requires the cultivation of clarity in two areas, identity and vision. In this episode, that's the entire focus, clarity. Let's get right into it. Here we go. Let's get messy. A few years ago, my sons and I were given an opportunity to tour the F-35 full mission flight simulation module at the Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Once we cleared security, my friend, who is an instructor on the base, walked us into the hangar, through a dozen doors and photo-lined hallways, and eventually into a room that I am not allowed to describe to you. It was filled with servers, control computers, digital monitors with cables running everywhere. Suffice it to say, this networked machine is the most advanced and complex system that I have ever seen. After a few moments of awe and a few dozen questions, my friend asked the operator to queue up a simulation of the Florida Gulf Coast and we were invited to pass through one more door into a room that contained the front end of a Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II fighter wing. The boys and I climbed up and into the cockpit of the massive plane, and we strapped into the seats. We watched and experienced the movements as my friend began to taxi us around on the runway. And then he moved quickly through the flight check commands and then rumbled across the pavement into a smooth takeoff, flying us up and over the Gulf Barrier Islands. The dashboard was absurdly remarkable. The gauges were outrageous. They all amounted to a nonsensical entangled mess in my untrained senses. There was way too much input. How could all this input possibly be beneficial to the F-35 pilots? 
was truly remarkable. I peeled my gaze from the digital screen and looked at Ryland and Rance buckled into the jump seats behind me. They were way more focused than I was. Both were totally locked into the Florida Gulf coastline, which was quickly disappearing as we flew out over the bluish gray of the Gulf Sea. They were oblivious to the hundreds of buttons and flashing lights and gauges spinning around us, focused on the horizon ahead of our plane. They were no longer in a flight simulator attached to the earth. They were flying over the Gulf and they were leaning into every turn. From the co-pilot chair, I blocked out the images flickering across the digital windshield and I focused on the dashboard to try to make sense of it all. I needed some answers from the pilot sitting beside me. What could all these gauges actually mean? I wondered aloud. The answer, they all add up to mean that we are flying well, not crashing into the Gulf. It was a good answer. Practical, simple, understood. Sir, yes, sir. But the complexity of it all was no less remarkable. Which gauges are the most important? I asked. The answer? Well, all of them, or they wouldn't be installed in the flight deck. Another good answer. Practical, simple, understood. Sir, yes, sir. But I still felt no less overwhelmed by the complexity of the flight deck instrument panel. I looked around for a single flight gauge to focus my attention upon as we moved toward the horizon, flying over boats and oil rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico. So which gauge is the most important? I asked again. My friend laughed and then Recognizing and understanding my condition, he had compassion on me and asked, well, which specific gauge do you want to know about? And thus began a conversation that was likely very boring for my friend, but was enthralling to me. As I worked to wrap my mind around the purpose of each gauge, to gain a better understanding of the flight instruments around me, the input was beginning to make some sense through all the complexity. And then my friend turned the plane back around toward the shore. We flew over Pensacola before he expertly maneuvered to point out his home on the screen. Then he leveled the plane to the horizon and offered me the flight controls, saying that I should bring the plane back to base for a landing. At this point, I would love to tell you that my 20 minutes of training and the benefit of my friend's mentoring and guidance allowed me to take the controls and bring us home. <laughs> but I crashed into a neighborhood filled with a hundred or more single family homes, streets lined with the vans of soccer moms, and a playground somewhere in Okaloosa County. To help us begin to move onward in this episode, I would like to ask you to imagine a dashboard in the cockpit of an airplane. Much like the scene I just described, under the windshield and above the steering control stick, there are dozens of gauges and buttons and flashing lights and digital global positioning screens. These are flight instruments with specific meaning, 
each is attuned with precision to measure the vital functions of our flight. And it would be incomprehensible for us to ignore all the flight instruments and just focus on the horizon and our windshield. We would be overlooking the level of our fuel, the altitude of our plane, the speed of our aircraft, the temperature of our engine, and a dozen, hundred, thousand other elements that are vitally important for a successful flight. But it can also be remarkably overwhelming if we attempt to focus on all the flight instruments in the dashboard all at once. When it comes to clarity and leadership, I believe there are a couple of gauges in our dashboard that are the most important for our success as leaders. There are also some gauges that we need to ignore so we can stay focused. It's my goal to identify these with you so we can make better sense of leadership in the midst of the mess. First, here's a story. On September 4th of 1936, at 6.50 a.m., Beryl Markham took off from Abingdon Airfield in Abingdon, England, in a Percival Vega Gull named The Messenger. Her destination was 3,600 miles away, and easy 2,000 miles of that was unbroken ocean. But New York awaited across the span of that distance to the west. Beryl Markham was attempting to do something that no other woman had ever achieved. She was flying solo, nonstop, over the Atlantic Ocean from England to North America. The flight from east to west is an especially challenging task because the pilot and aircraft must fly against the prevailing winds of the Atlantic from start to finish. A westward Atlantic flight requires more endurance, more fuel, and more time than the eastward Atlantic journey. And Beryl Markham was attempting to do it with no stops and no rest and no radio. No female pilot had completed the flight from England to New York. And Beryl Markham had her sights on accomplishing this feat in her Vega goal. The messenger was powered by a de Havilland Gypsy 6, an air-cooled six-cylinder piston engine. Her plane was purposefully outfitted with care for this long, dark Atlantic flight. In her own words, Beryl Markham described the Vega goal. The goal had a turquoise blue body and silver wings. Edgar Percival had made her with care, with skill, and with worry. The care of a veteran flyer, the skill of a master designer, and the worry of a friend. Actually, the plane was a standard sport model with a range of only 660 miles. But she had a special undercarriage built 
to carry the weight of her extra oil and petrol tanks. The tanks were fixed into the wings, into the center section, and into the cabin herself. In the cabin, they formed a wall around my seat. So, the Vega Gull had six fuel tanks, two standard tanks in the wings, two in the center section of the plane, and two in the cabin itself. Beryl Markham was flying completely surrounded by 255 gallons of petrol fuel. This amount of fuel would theoretically keep her in the air for a 3,800 mile flight range. But there was only one gauge for the two standard fuel tanks. The other four tanks? Ungaged. Let's pause just to make sure we're on the same page here. The Vega Gull was equipped with six total fuel tanks, carrying 255 gallons of fuel, but she was not carrying a radio. Beryl Markham was quite literally alone in a flying fuel tank of a plane. She had set the nose of the messenger to the west, and she flew into the night. After several hours of flight, Beryl Markham recounted the following experience. So there, behind me is Cork, Ireland, and ahead of me is Bearhaven Lighthouse. It is the last light, standing on the last land. I watch it, counting the frequency of its flashes, so many to the minute. Then I pass it and fly out to sea. The fear is gone now, not overcome nor reasoned away. It is gone because something else has taken its place. The confidence and the trust, the inherent belief in the security of land underfoot. Now this faith is transferred to my plane because the land has vanished and there is no other tangible thing to fix my faith upon. Flight is but a momentary escape from the eternal custody of earth. Rain continues to fall outside the cabin. It is totally dark. My altimeter gauge says the Atlantic is 2,000 feet below me. My Sperry artificial horizon gyro gauge says that I am flying level, but I am also flying blind. A beam to follow would help, but so would a radio, and then so would clear weather. I feel the wind rising and the rain falls hard. The smell of petrol in the cabin is so strong and the roar of the plane so loud that my senses are almost deadened. Gradually, it becomes unthinkable that existence was ever otherwise. At 10.30 p.m., I am still flying on the large cabin tank of petrol, hoping to use it up and put an end to the liquid swirl that has rocked the plane since my takeoff. The cabin tank has no gauge, but written on its side is the assurance. This tank is good for four hours. There is nothing ambiguous about such a guarantee. I believe it, but at 10.25 p.m., my motor coughs and it dies. And the goal is powerless above the sea. It is dark in the cabin. It is easy to see the luminous dial of the altimeter. 
and to note that my height is now only 1,100 feet. At 300 feet, the motor is still dead, and I am conscious that the needle of my altimeter seems to swirl and whirl like the spoke of a spindle winding up the remaining distance between the plane and the water. There is some lightning, but the quick flash only serves to emphasize the darkness. How high can waves reach? 20 feet, perhaps? 30? I do not know how close to the waves I am when finally the motor explodes back to life again, but the sound is almost meaningless. I see my hand easing back on the stick and feel the goal climb into the storm. And I see the altimeter whirl like a spindle again, paying out the distance between myself and the sea. After this harrowing experience over the Atlantic, Beryl Markham continued her coffee and cold chicken sustained sleepless flight bound for Floyd Bennett Airfield in New York. After a continuous 20-hour flight with the sun rising on the horizon, the messenger's air-cooled six-cylinder engine began to sputter. She checked her instrument panel. The oil pressure and temperature gauges were normal. The magnetos working. The fuel gauges showed plenty of fuel in the main tank, and yet she was still losing altitude. The realization of potential failure seeped into her heart. Even while her mind worked the calculations and her hands worked the levers to keep the messenger in the air. Every time the engine came to a stop, the plane glided closer to the ocean below. The Atlantic would swallow the Vega Gull and her pilot hole. Without a radio to signal the shore, to inspire the fading hope of rescue, or even to report the news of her flight status, Beryl Markham had no choice but to strive against the elements. Watching her altimeter spin wildly, Beryl worked with precision to prevent airlock on the fuel tanks by shutting them off completely and re-engaging each, one by one. The Vega Gull would sputter back to life just long enough for Beryl to climb up and away from the waiting Atlantic waves before the engine died yet again. She repeated the restart process with urgency while checking her charts, reworking calculations in her mind, and straining to see through the iced windshield, searching the early morning horizon for the Canadian coastline that should have already appeared. The sputtering fight against the elements and her failing aviation equipment left almost no margin for error. Her fingers bleeding from the working of the fuel tank petcock levers, Beryl continued to struggle, hoping and praying for land to emerge in the distance. Finally, the visibility cleared just enough for Beryl to see the shoreline about 40 to 50 miles in the distance. With hope renewed, she was able to pilot the Vega Gull away from the sea, where she crash-landed, nose-first, in the black peat bogland of Nova Scotia, Canada, 
on September 5th of 1936. Later, it was discovered that the Vega Gull had not failed her pilot. The trusted airplane suffered from fuel starvation after the fuel tank vents froze from persistent icing. The storm that had accompanied Beryl across the Atlantic choked off fuel from the carburetor of her beloved Gypsy 6 engine. The next day, after 21 hours and 25 minutes of Atlantic flight from Abingdon, England to a nameless swamp nonstop, Beryl Markham stepped out of a plane at Floyd Bennett Field in Long Island. Crowds greeted her at the airfield. Her achievement was celebrated with a ticker tape parade through Manhattan, and she was honored by Mayor LaGuardia. Mrs. Markham receives the admiration of New York. At the City Hall, still bearing the evidence of her forced landing in Cape Breton Island, she is accorded the official congratulations of the mayor, Mr. LaGuardia. Extend to you a sincere welcome and our congratulations on your splendid flight across the ocean. Beryl communicated the difficulty of her experience to the news reporters. She said, It was a great adventure, but I'm so glad it's over. I really had a terrible time. That's the only word for it. Terrible. Fifteen seconds more and I believe my aeroplane and I would have gone down on the water and no one would have ever known what became of us. Beryl Markham's feet was front-page material round the world. She was admired by many and even met with executives from Paramount Pictures. Here's the audio from one broadcast documenting her historic east-to-west flight across the Atlantic. And now, another Atlantic bid. Mrs. Beryl Markham, after awaiting favorable weather for her east to west flight, suddenly decides to take off in her single-engine machine. With Abingdon Aerodrome closely guarded, she makes a farewell talk for the camera. Like all pilots on long-distance flights, I hope for good weather and good luck. An aerial shot shows the start of her adventurous voyage, and then she's off. Cloudy skies made the prospect for a successful Atlantic crossing none too bright, but she's done it. She's the first woman to make an east to west hop by herself. When she eventually arrived back in England from the United States, Beryl expressed her disappointment mixed with joy to the gathered audience. Hello everyone, I'm very pleased to be back in England to see such a wonderful reception. I was very really disappointed not getting as far as New York. So I traveled 2,800 miles in 20, 1 hour 25 minutes. Beryl Markham was the first woman to fly from England to North America against the prevailing winds alone, without a radio, in a plane filled with 255 gallons of fuel over 2,800 miles in continuous 
transatlantic flight. In the darkness of her historic flight, we can only begin to imagine how reliant Beryl Markham had to be upon her flight instruments in the Vega Gull. These gauges were her lifelines as she navigated the elements to remain suspended in the lonely storm-soaked space between the drenched ocean waves below and the angry atmosphere above. The luminous glow of the altimeter, the oil, fuel, and gyro gauges on her flight panel kept her flying with clarity. Even when she was flying blind, most of those 2,800 miles. In the messiness, clarity helps us remain focused on the path ahead, even when we feel that we are flying blind. Identity is the altimeter in our flight dashboard. In the messy chaos of life, identity allows us to remain level. Identity keeps us from losing altitude when it feels that we've lost our bearing in the chaos of the storm and we can no longer see the horizon. In order to lead with clarity, every messy leader needs to be willing to walk the lonely road of identity development. Because it's through identity that we lead from a place of authenticity. Friends, your story is the most important thing about you. But many of us spend our lives trying to ignore ourselves and hijack someone else's story rather than living our own. We fill our days and hours with distractions to push back the loneliness. We allow ourselves to be seduced by utopian thinking and let fear and criticism keep us from embracing the loneliness of leadership. Beryl Markham reflected on the loneliness of her flight across the Atlantic and the depth of loneliness in the human narrative toward the end of her life. She wrote, You can live a lifetime, and at the end of it, know more about other people than you know about yourself. You learn to watch other people, but you never watch yourself because you strive against loneliness. If you read a book, or shuffle a deck of cards, or care for a dog, you are avoiding yourself. The abhorrence of loneliness is as natural as wanting to live at all. If we allow it to, loneliness will develop clarity in our identity. Loneliness runs deep at the heart of the human narrative. And to imagine that we can live with clarity without traveling the path of loneliness is ignorant. If you consider one of your favorite stories, you will likely find a character at the center of the narrative who is on a mission that requires a path of loneliness and anguish. The theme is pervasive. You and I are storytellers, story listeners, story learners. We can't help it. That's the way we're wired as humans, born to live and share a great story. The cultivation of clarity plants our story in place and allows us to be rooted deep enough that we will see beyond the mess of ourselves and the mess around us with great vision. And that brings us to the second flight instrument, the gauge of clarity in vision. 
Vision is the fuel gauge in our flight dashboard. In the messy chaos of life, vision motivates us to keep flying toward the horizon with passion. Vision reminds us why we were flying to begin with. And vision compels us to see the world with clarity and to invite others into our narrative with hope and vulnerability. Vision fuels messy leaders to live and lead with faith. Vision acknowledges what could be, anticipates what should be, and establishes a direction toward what is. The world is waiting with anticipation to follow those who have a compelling vision for the world and the passion to pursue that vision. Casting vision with clarity for the world around us begins with us, our view of ourselves, our view of the world, and our willingness to be vulnerable. When a messy leader has no clarity and vision, we are less likely to devote the sustained attention that is necessary to acknowledge and anticipate the realization of our vision. A lack of clarity and vision creates a crisis of continuous partial attention, which leads to continuous partial commitment. Consequently, when messy leaders have clarity and vision, we are more likely to achieve the sustained attention needed to persevere through difficulty and chaos, to develop sustained commitment to lead others toward the fulfillment of that vision. When we lead with vision clarity, many of the hardest decisions are already made because we have set a measurable trajectory for our altitude. Vision clarity sets us on a path toward a destination and this gives the journey so much more meaning. If messy leaders are able to communicate their vision with clarity, and if we're able to dedicate ourselves with sustained attention and sustained commitment, then so many of the unexpected mistakes and opportunities of crisis and pains of failure will be redeemed along the way. In conclusion, I would like to remind you that everyone wants to participate in a great narrative. And you have a responsibility to lead well. The story that has been entrusted to you will not be wasted. You have what it takes to lead with clarity. And we are waiting on you to lead us somewhere on purpose. Every individual ends up going somewhere in life but a very small number end up going somewhere on purpose. The on-purpose destination of your life requires the cultivation of clarity in identity and vision.
If you have not taken the opportunity to subscribe to the Messy Leadership Podcast, I hope you will take a few moments to do that now. This is a simple way for you to express your support for the podcast, and you can also subscribe through iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast streaming app using the Messy Leadership RSS feed. Additionally, if you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please consider sharing it with other messy leaders you know. The quotes from Beryl Markham in this episode were taken from her autobiography entitled West with the Night. I first heard about Beryl Markham when I stumbled across an article quoting Ernest Hemingway a few months ago. In the quote, taken from one of Hemingway's personal letters to a friend, he was so deeply impressed with Markham's writing that he said, and I quote, She has written so well and so marvelously well that I was completely ashamed of myself as a writer. When I read this quote, I searched for the book immediately in the digital stacks at my local library, and then I read it last year. Regardless of Hemingway's endorsement, I'll be honest, the book really is quite wonderful. And as always... The music featured in every episode of the Messy Leadership Podcast is created by Adam Hendricks. You can find Adam's music on the World Wide Web. His music is streamable on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and almost any music app in the whole online universe. Do yourself a favor and check out a few of his songs. Uh, He has a a recent album called Swept Away. Uh, That's the name of the album. And it's filled with songs about doubt and questions of faith and and hope, and I promise it's worth a listen. By the way, Adam is a huge fan of Ernest Hemingway, and he owns many leather-bound books. Not sure what that does for you when you're searching for a musician to support with your time, energy, and finances, but there it is. Nonetheless, Adam's music is outstanding. I also need to take a moment to say thank you real quick to a friend who introduced me to podcasting. A couple of years ago, Keith and I were shooting some little clay discs with 12-gauge shotguns when he abruptly turned to me and asked if I listened to podcasts. The moment was memorable. You know, it didn't change my life, but it was memorable. So I ask you, what do podcasts smell like to you? To me... Podcasts smell like a cold fall breeze and shot shell gunpowder. So I started listening, and now you're listening to me. Pretty amazing. Thanks, Keith. And that's it for this episode of the Messy Leadership Podcast. I have some bonus content from this episode that didn't quite make the final editing cut because we're already at 35 minutes and so on and so forth. And I'll be publishing that separate for you soon. And then I'm going to take a break for a little while. I've been offered an opportunity to teach an honors course on leadership this semester at the local university in my hometown of Salisbury. So I'm going to shift my focus to that for a few weeks. But rest assured that I will be writing and recording as time allows. I just want to ensure that I give myself enough room to learn and grow with these students for the entire semester. Season one of the Messy Leadership Podcast has more content in the outline, 
and I have quite a bit more to say before this season wraps up. As always, thank you for listening. It is an honor to share this space with you for the time we have together. Let's get messy.